Oren Falkovitz, finally. This is an episode of Finally, the podcast from Michael Furtick. I'm joined today by Oren Falkovitz, an American who has had a varied career from the secretive halls of the NSA to the green fields of Silicon Valley. Oren grew up in Florida and decided after school and some entrepreneurship to go to the National Security Agency where he spent seven or eight years. In fact, I believe he worked before that the office of the Director of National Intelligence and then later at the Cyber Command and then became, excuse me, an entrepreneur and CEO. His biggest success was Area One Security, where he was the founder and CEO for almost seven years and then gave over the reins of CEO to another fellow who led the company to a sale by Cloudflare, rather an acquisition by Cloudflare, a sale to Cloudflare, which is a famous public company. Since then, in fact, before the actual sale, Oren moved back from California, where I got to know him, to Washington, D.C., where he has taken up residence and is involving himself in entrepreneurship, advising companies, and possibly more. I was introduced to Oren by some common investors years ago at a time when he was facing some convulsions in his own experience and in his company leadership experience. And he and I were able to have some very frank conversations. He'll reflect on some of those, I think, today. And the mission for today's discussion is a little bit unusual because Oren is one of the small number of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who have both had a favorable exit and who have some honest-to-goodness and not entirely rosy things to say about his experience in Silicon Valley. He'll decide if he wants to name names, but the goal here is to be revealing and intimately invited into the details of the ups and downs of what it's like to deal with board members, investors, what it's like to have the confidence of your board as a CEO and founder and perhaps some days face some lesser degree of confidence from them and with them. Oren Falkovitz, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to chat. Is there anything that you would quickly like to add to or edit or amend from this short bio that I've given you in your remarkable career? Oh no, I think uh, I think you got it mostly uh, correct, and uh, you know, I'm excited to to chat with you and to help others who are on the entrepreneurial, especially in the CEO role, you know, great. Uh, achieve great outcomes. So, oh, excellent. Well, that's generous of you. So, um, give us an overview of what Area One Security was, what your vision was, and then take us to the time. In your own time, take us to the time when the 
the story of the board dynamic, which is in some way I think our our main focus for today, because it's that that board dynamic that gives rise to your mixed perspective. And you should say it in your own words. Don't let me put words in your mouth of Silicon Valley. Take us through a little bit of the history of Area One Security. What was it? What was your vision? What was working and what was working less well? And then how you and I met, perhaps. And then, to the extent you're willing to share that. And then deposit us to the place where suddenly you're feeling agitated or aggravated by some of the board dynamics. That's one of the, one of the topics you and I dealt with years ago, to the extent sure. that you can. Well, as you mentioned, you know, I, I really started my professional career at the National Security Agency. So I started there as a ballistic missile analyst and then as a computer hacker and then worked in the computer science research division. Uh, and, you know, our vision for Area 1 was pretty straightforward, which is to stop uh, email phishing attacks. Uh, you know, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, uh, phishing is the way that 9 and 10 cyber attacks begin. It's, you know, you receive an email, it says click on a link log into something, but unwittingly you're giving your password, your username away to someone or you're downloading a file and, and so forth. Uh, so it's, you know, it's a form of internet huckster or, or, or scam, but uh, it's it's the most pervasive way that damages, you know, exist in that space. And so we wanted to solve that problem. We wanted to solve it for two reasons, you know, one, nobody was doing it. Uh, and secondly, it's the way that we did the attacks when I worked at NSA. And so we knew it, you know, very uh, intimately. And so, you know, like all good, uh, you know, founders or entrepreneurs, we built a team, you know, mostly former colleagues and folks we trusted and met along sort of the life journey. Uh, I had been living uh, in Boston, so I knew a bunch of people at MIT and, and we just built a great team. And, you know, we went out and we said, hey, we have a great idea. And, you know, we had some some early supporters, folks like, uh, you know, Derek Smith, who's a great cybersecurity executive and CEO. They were supportive. And then we got, you know, the regular, you know, started the regular mail of, you know, investor fundraising. And, uh, you know, in the early days, um, all of the sort of, you know, best folks, you know, were, were a part of it. Uh, Ted Schlein and Kleiner Perkins, who's our sort of earliest and most... Um, important backer and most helpful backer, you know, over the years. And that's sort of how we started to, to build the company with that simple vision and, you know, lots of, lots of hard, dedicated work. And uh, just let's dwell on that for a second. Derek Smith, whom I know, Ted Schlein, whom I know, uh, who's invested in one of my companies as well. Um, tell our audience, some of whom will be familiar with venture, but most of whom will not be, um, how did how does Oren Falkovitz meet someone like a Derek Smith, and how does Derek Smith, years ago, now he's his, his investor too, and a very successful, very well exited entrepreneur in cyber, and great does, great person, how, yeah, and a great person, yeah. Um, how does someone like that become important to you as a as a as an angel or as a, an advisor early on? What what's the dynamic in Silicon Valley that you're describing here? Can you amplify on it for our well, yeah, I'll have million. to go. I'll have to go backwards uh, a little bit. So, when I was coming out of the government, I had met Derek. He had been engaged at the Pentagon at some senior levels, and he had heard of the team that I was working on, and and we had met. Uh, and he was very interested in our work. Actually, in the first company I found, he's very interested in it. And at the time, we were deciding between whether or not we should 
work with someone like Derek, right, or some Boston-based investors who had way bigger, you know, blogs and profiles and so forth, and we chose to work with these uh, Boston-based uh, investors. It was a terrible decision, uh, you know, for for all the things we'll talk talk about in lots of ways, but you know, erratic, you know, unsophisticated to the problem that we're solving, you know, mercurial in in lots of different ways. Uh, and really, the way we got linked up with Derek is that you know after you know, that company exited to, to Amazon, he was one of the first people to say, let's try it again. You know, I, I believe in you. Like, let's let's figure out what's what's the next big idea. And, you know, I think one of the, the lessons for folks who aren't, you know, steeped or don't grow up in, in the California-based ecosystem to know is it's very difficult to discern who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, you know, uh, because there's so much um, blogging and podcasting and, you know, uh, Forbes 40 lists and uh, Midas gold touch lists. And, you know, there's so much of this happening that you can often, and, and, and a lot of those people are, are excellent people, but um, that's not, you know, necessarily the right uh, rubric for deciding who it is you're going to be working with on a day-to-day basis and who, mm. you know, can really help guide you. Uh, and so that was kind of a first early trap in, in my experience is that we got caught with some of the bluster versus the, you know, just regular hard work, you know, integrity of, of someone like Derek. But, you know, as soon as he was one of those first people, as I mentioned, to pick up the phone and say, hey, let's do it again. Like, how can I help? Uh, that's how we started to develop a very strong, you know, friendship and, and how he introduced us really. caught up in the bluster? Well, so, you know, when I was coming out of the government, we're basically looking at two people, right? We're saying, like, here's this one person who doesn't have a large public profile. And these other people, we can see they're on conference stages. They must be better for some reason, right? Uh, and you're trying to decide, like, which million dollars is better? You don't, you know, you don't really know. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have a lot of, you know, when coming from my experience, coming from, from the U.S. government, where you don't have, like, a large network, I can't call you up, Michael, or I can't call, you know, other, you know, founder friends of mine that I have now and say, hey, what do you think about this? Like, what have you heard? What do you know? What is it really like uh, to work with them uh, on a board or day to day? Then you're left with superficial, you know, uh, strategies for just for determining what choices you're going to make. And and that was a big fail in our in our first business. It led to the Mm -hmm. ultimate like suboptimal outcome there. But ultimately, it led to a stronger you know, relationship with, with someone like Derek, because you could immediately see, you know, his commitment to us as people was, uh, was more longstanding. Uh, and, you know, we're so thankful, you know, for that, you know, fun, funny, uh, I have another NSA friend who came to Boston at the time I was wiping it down and he had the exact same option, the opportunity to work with Derek and Ted Schlein or to take almost a similar deal that I had taken. And I had to talk to him and say, look, we know what happens when you go behind door two. It's not great. Uh, and his company is is one of the most successful cybersecurity companies, you know, out there as, as a result. But he benefited from my sort of, you know, struggle or, or learning through that. So, so, so what you're describing is a kind of a series of tastemakers or gatekeepers to the hallowed inner sanctum of... Silicon Valley, is that correct? You know, I think that there are really two versions of Silicon Valley, right? There is the um, what you can glean from the outside and then the inner workings, right? And as, as you might, might agree, <clears throat> some of the best people to work with are a little bit lower profile, right? Or more, or more niche, right? In their uh, being able to get to them. 
and I think a lot of folks who are trying to, to break in and trying to build, you know, big companies can get caught up in a lot of bluster and a lot of superficial sort of talk. But at the end of the day, building companies is hard, requires a lot of discipline, requires a lot of patience, requires a lot of uh, integrity and compassion. Uh, and it's not a quick money uh, scheme. And you can't just, you know, blog about it. But those, but those truisms, maybe platitudes, got to work hard and have grits and so forth. They're presumably accurate whether or not you have a tastemaker introducing party like Derek. You did. I'm just trying to pinpoint if you whether if, if you believe what, that there's a a kind of a series of people you've met in your life, maybe you've become one now yourself, who are conduits to the the decision makers in Silicon Valley. Or is that am I am I not hearing you well? Is that is that kind of just No, I think that's accidental. right. I think those con- I think those conduits, either, you know, portfolio founders or, you know, trusted advisors into firms or companies are the key, right, for, for great success. Um, okay. You know, Derek, look, this, is, this uh, you, is who Derek was to you in some sense. This is who Derek, you know, was to us yeah. and he helped guide us around, you know, uh, tough, tough choices. Uh, look, you can go to any firm or any partner uh, that you want out there and you can just send them a pitch deck, you know, hit their Twitter or, you know, they all have probably like invest at firm.com. But we all know that the chances of that being picked up or being seen is key. So the the first thing that good conduits can do is can get you in front of the the partners, right? There's at at a a Silicon Silicon Valley venture firm, there's a lot of people with the term partner. uh, And really, you know, there are a, a even smaller number of people who are making investments and who are making mm. uh, decisions and being able to get to them is, is why, you know, great founders, great CEOs, great advisors, board members, right. Can be super helpful. Those conduits that, that you were saying, yeah, the rest of the people. You skip the analyst and principal class, some of whom have been socially promoted to so-called partner, but they're not partners. They're just. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a whole class of people. If you just look at the website, there's a whole n- number of people named partner who've never made an investment. Uh, in their life, probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's really critical to be able to get to the, you know, uh, the top people who are making those decisions and yeah. who can be uh, value add to, to building your business. All right. So <clears throat> Derek gets you to TED, TED invests. They make an investment. Area One Security is off building its network. It's building its anti-phishing technology. It's building its machine learning, presumably, that helps detect um, phishing attempts. It's building its firewalls in the cloud. So what's going right? What's going wrong? Fast fast forward to a time. What's going right? What's going wrong? Uh, Ted at the time is at Kleiner Perkins. You take more money, I think, probably from some other investors. What? Where are we after this phase? Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, really at that at that phase, you know, where, where Ted and Kleiner Perkins came in, things were going super great for us, really building good technology, early customer success. The problem is only getting bigger. People are really seeing it. I think we're building a good board dynamic, people working together, understanding, you know, there, there's more to be done here. Uh, and then, we, you know, we have to go raise money, uh, you know, to continue to finance the company. And I think one of the benefits for the premier partners that you work with, the, the Ted's of the world and, and others and the Kleiner Perkins is that there are a lot of firms that start to follow them, right? And they make it easy to raise the money. Uh, and I think that's where we sort of had our initial first, you know, misstep. Let's do all, let's do all that for a second. So, so what, what, Horn is saying cannot be 
overstated in its importance that there are some famous venture firms, um, a handful, who kind of, let's say, always or virtually always get followed by many hanger-on firms, some of which are even built expressly or almost expressly, expressly yeah. to follow on specific firms. So follow on just the Sequoia or just the Benchmark or just the Kleiner Perkins, let's say. Um, and they leverage those personal relationships to kind of get first dibs and they're often generous with terms. Um, and so I think- And I think that's, an, that's an advantage to to working with the, the top tier firms is that you know the future- right. The future financing is, is is simpler. There's uh, an expertise, all the hard work of diligence and the initial building, right? There's there's a there's a trust that's built between those groups, and that's a part of the ecosystem. Enormous signal value to their investment. Other people want to follow them right away. And from from the founder and entrepreneur and CEO perspective, just a lot easier than having to go check it out to forty people uh, to go say, hey, like these folks have been in our other deals. They've been useful. I think you know later, a, a, as you raise more and more money. I think the expectation of value add sort of diminishes. You start to say, well, just, you know, I just need more money, right? Like what is, uh, you know, I already have the, the best people kind of around. I just kind of need more money. Let's, let's keep going. That, that's one of the trade-offs folks can, can make there. So, okay. So, uh, so this ha presumably happens to you. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's, exa that's exactly what happened to us. You know, we got what people call preempted, you know, financing. Someone just said, hey, we'll give you money before we do it. It makes it very easy. You're to not do. looking for it. You're not looking for it. It finds you. That's called preemption. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they just uh -huh. come and say, hey, we've, we've heard, you know, about you. And wow, what's so flattering. Wow, you've heard of me. You know, who am I? Uh, it's good to and, be the king. You know, and you have, you know, sort of, you know, chit chat. And then next day, you know, you're being offered terms and they look really great and uh you know huge valuations huge sums of money uh you know re relatively modest compared to some things in the world but like you know still as an individual uh mm -hmm. and you say yeah let's let's go do it right like that that makes sense i don't want to have to go you know fundraise and actually dig into numbers and like really rationalize it and you know mm -hmm. going back now this is probably 10 years ago or eight, you know, eight or eight or 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, dynamics of the world were, were very different. There was a very low interest rate environment and money was kind of flowing and valuations were very high. And that's yes. something that we were just excited about, right? We we're just like, well, it's just yes. going up, right? Like that's, that's the best thing ever. What's better than going up? So it seems to me at this time that things are going well in the world of area one security or Norrin Falkovitz. What's, What's not going well, or when is there a cloud that's gathering on the horizon, or not yet? What seems to me that at this point, at least as as the story goes, <clears throat> things are going pretty swimmingly. I think, like from 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 my perspective, you know, in sort of the mental model that that I was running with in terms of our product and engineering development, given our customer attraction, you know, and so forth, things are going very well. But we start to see as we bring in you know, this, this new set of uh, investors that there's a lot of toxicity that's brought into the boardroom. And okay, it, so it's really, first, just as, a, as, a, as a point of order, many of our listeners will know, but more will not know that typically when you take a significant amount of money from a new venture investor, that significant amount of money comes with an entitlement to a board seat. So that new investor will have a board representative from that investment firm joining your board. So now you've got 
uh, maybe you've got someone from Kleiner, presumably Ted, you've got someone from the new firm, you've got someone else. These people are joining your board and you're no longer, let's say, in control of the board. Is that just as a basic contextual fact accurate, accurate or, or not? You know, I would say, I, that, that's accurate. I, I would say it's less to me about like control as just the, the interpersonal dynamics. For, okay, for so the let's meetings. focus you know, I, on the, the interpersonal I, you know, dynamics. Yeah, I, mean, I recall distinctly after our first uh, our first meeting after this new financing with new investors, I received a call from kind of our main partner at the new firm. And he said, that was the best board meeting I've ever been to. You know, it's actually better than we thought it was going to be. I thought, wow, that's very, very interesting. Very, very nice compliment. Um, you know, he went on to tell me that most of the times it, it works worse, right? You know, from when they're actually in the room, it actually looks a lot different than from the, you know, what they had seen through the fundraising process. So we felt like, you know, we're really off to a good start. But we saw very quickly that, you know, as we needed to dig into tough decisions about pricing model, about key hires and so forth, uh, you know, there starts to be a lot of uh, friction, you know, brought in. And why? I would say like, let's, so let's, let's just, you mentioned pricing models. That seems like a pretty inert subject. It seems like something that would not be a topic for contentious debate, maybe some, well, some, some think, difference of, of past experience, but why, why would such a topic turn into something that could be a little heated or toxic? You use the word toxicity. So what, what, what happens? What, what can you report without giving away anything detailed you'll report? What, what, what's the illustration sort of second by second or minute by minute or moment by moment that you can let us into in this boardroom dynamic you're describing? I think the first thing we started to notice is that while folks have bought the right to be on the board, they haven't really earned the right to be on any boards whatsoever. They don't have any particular prior business mm -hmm. experience, any, any sort of, you know, knowledge to discern. They're simply there protecting their investment, which is a worthwhile uh, right to maintain. And certainly, you know, it's, it's part of the, the legal and financing process, but it starts to change the way that we have to communicate and articulate certain aspects of the business uh, to, you know, do a lot of um, like uh, carrying of water, like, you know, inane tasks. Like I want you to talk to this person uh, at, you know, uh, so suddenly we start to receive a lot of tasks, like go talk to this person, or, you know, we want you to start doing business in this other country because we have a partner there, you know, and so forth. And you should start to see that there's a, a, a divergence in understanding for what we're trying to do, how we're going to get there. Uh, and when you get into something like pricing, which is so essential, um, in terms of adoption and acceleration of the growth, the, the conflict really slows the whole business down and uh wait, you know, okay, wait. That's great. this is good we're getting to the meat of it so the the basic observation you're making is such and such board member not naming names at least for now that's fine who comes from a firm that is following kleiner let's say i think as i've heard mm -hmm. you say it if i heard you well uh now is someone who has purchased this right contractual right to sit on your board and to attend board meetings and to opine on these questions but as you describe it has never had himself or herself the experience the success the track record in operating a company and building a company that might justify 
having a strong opinion on an operational question, let's say. And one such operational question is how do we price anti-phishing network installation software, something, something. And you're raising a question, look, these customers want us to price it monthly. Those customers want us to price it per computer or endpoint. Or, um, or you know, or, or, you know, what was, or do something freemium, right? Like maybe we'll give it away up to a certain point, right? Because we're actually going to defer revenue, which has been popular, you know, over the last years and actually led to a lot of growth. We're going to defer revenue pretty, you know, pretty far. And you have to be really bought into this concept that, because uh, we were trying to do something that was like a freemium uh, model, which would be like, we're just going to give people the software and monetize it later. This, you know, this the freemium would be like, um, Twitter, where you sort of get to use it free, but then you get to pay so many bucks a month to have your blue check. That's freemium. Or, or more like a Dropbox, where you can store up to a certain, okay. where you can, you can do up to a certain number, but if you want X features, mm -hmm. right? Okay, they, so they, here they, you are. They, You're they, the CEO, the plucky young CEO, Orrin Falkovitz from the NSA in Florida, who's now finding himself in the big city of Palo Alto. Redwood City. <laughs> yeah. and, you're, and you're saying... Hi ho! I wish to offer this novel concept of pricing my cyber security protection called freemium, and then the person or persons on the board whom you are describing—what do they say? What happens? Well, I think one of the things that you know I was less adept at the time is that a board is more like a partnership, right? Than it is. Uh, so when I work for the government, it's a general down, right? When you're the CEO, you're the CEO, you're the boss down. And a board is like a collective group of partnership. And one of the dynamics that we start to see is that good board members often want to defer or create consensus, right, among the board, right? It's a collegial kind of environment. And so as we start to see this friction, you know, people will just sort of, you know, fold back, not wanting to create disagreements but it just ends up slowing down the work, right? And creates a lot of overhead for the company, let's, right? Okay, so let's, With, let's, let's, let's talk more about that. How does a board meeting or a frustrating board discussion actually translate into slowing down the work? Is it psychic load? Is it just feeling like you've got to fight City Hall? Is, you got to, is it you got to follow up with a deck explaining all the comparable the, the, the comparables research you've done? on freemium pricing versus other kinds of pricing. This guy wants to be able to benefit from your research. What exactly slows you down or is it just annoying? It's, it's all of those things, which I would say are annoying, but a tax that's worth paying. Sometimes doing extra work is totally fine. You, will, it, you get better outcomes. You understand things that maybe you were just pushing forward. Uh, where, where it becomes more difficult is, like I was saying, is you are intuiting or thinking about a longer term outcome. We're going to get a lot of users. We're going to make installation of our software easy, which is the big friction in enterprise selling is getting people just to use it. And we're going to try to monetize it later. So where it becomes a lot of friction is as you go through that. So maybe we carry the water, we do some extra models, we do some extra charts, we do some extra talking to people. Fine. That whole, that type of homework I think is good for everyone. And that's mm. always useful. But what you find is that, or at least what I found, is that when we decide to move it forward, right, 
one of two things because you know are, are happening the, the first is they're not really given the sort of lack of i think general business expertise that a lot of board members you know possess they're not hmm. really anticipating or intuiting what it's going to look like on the spreadsheet in a quarter and a two quarters and three quarters ah and so, so it's when, like okay fine 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 you want to try this freemium thing great exactly so but there's then, a grudge being held quarter, and go ahead exactly Right. So now, now there's like a grudge being held. Well, I told you, you know, because when the next quarter looks, you know, soft or something, there's this grudge. Well, I told you now the I told you so has come out, which, uh-huh. you know, are, are not helpful in a marriage. They're not helpful in business. Like they're just not helpful right, in life. Uh, and the chaos starts to ensue because now we're dissecting. Maybe it's the way you incentivize the salespeople. Well, you know. From from general not understanding the profit and loss statements to now we're going to create comp plans. This is a really big bridge. So what is, uh, for some what is the, I can see now what you're saying. And there's a kind of presumptuous. cascading, yeah, effect. Um, that you're, what is the appropriate reaction for an investor board member in your estimation? For for what scenario reaction well, to what? Instead of instead of the second guessing and armchair generalship that you're describing uh, from these unqualified individuals as you describe them, what what is the appropriate response from a from an investor to seeing a couple quarters later we're still not seeing revenue or whatever they're seeing? What is the appropriate response? Well, I think the the appropriate the you know the the good investor the, the touch lines of the world you know I've worked with the Derek Smiths you know the world they ask questions uh, that help sometimes get you to an answer or help you think you know one of the best things about working with uh, with Ted was you know I presented him a plan and said hey we're going to do X million dollars of uh, revenue uh, in sales next year and he just kind of looked at me very calmly and said you know if you did half of that and customers were really happy that'd be great. And so I think they find a way to depressurize the situation, mm. to think long term, to say, hey, we're trying to build a really large company here. We want it to be rational. Mm. We want it to be sustaining. We don't want it to fall flat on its face uh, in the future. Mm. And they can help you sort of, you know, entrepreneurs are overly optimistic. You know, it's not mm. glass half empty or full. It's like overflowing with optimism in, mm-hmm. in my world. And so kind of saying like, hey, like if you did 50 percent of that, like I think we'd be off to a great start. That wisdom, that perspective, that depressurization, that really like putting the right uh, goal uh, in in front. And so I think when you hit a crisis, like maybe you're below, uh, you know, a, a, proje- a projection or, or an estimate saying like, what are two or three things that we could do? Here are some people maybe go talk to. That's how you and I got connected, Michael, because Ted said, I think you should talk to Michael. I think you'd like each yep. other. He has a lot of experience. That's the type of response from good board members uh, that you want is that they're actively when they don't know the answer, because the way you got the way we know each other a little wrong. Uh, maybe I'll just say, it, which is that I, I had been invited to go to the World Economic Forum and I asked Ted if he thought this would be a good use of my time. And he said, you know, I don't know, but Michael has been before. And then I, and then I called you and you said it'll be a terrible use of your time. Um, and I went anyways because I just wanted to go to Switzerland, which you predicted would happen. And it was a huge waste of my time, right? You were correct. And sometimes, you know, you're just going to do things because you want to do them. But mm. that is a, a small microcosm of a non, you know, mm. a serious issue where he says, you know, I don't know, but I know someone who does. Right. Yep. And that creates a lot of value because you and I get to know each other in a different way. We have, you know, and so forth. 
And so I think when you find that's what that's what a good response is, is here's some thoughts, here's some experiences I've had, here's some other people to talk to, uh, but not like exploding, right? I mean, this is a two or three year old company. How could they possibly get their financial forecasts, you know, correct when, you know, sophisticated, you know, publicly traded companies often struggle with this, you know, all the time. So um, I think that perspective is, is what's what's uh, what's missing in, in that dynamic. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So there's a kind of certainty, self-assuredness that comes with uh, the quality of arrogance you're describing that at least some board members have, and it creates a toxic discussion. Uh, maybe it discourages experimentation. Um, maybe exactly. it discourages Absolutely. those things that make entrepreneurs entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial. Um, okay. And, and I think I think what it does is that the key and the lesson I learned from you is, you know, you said to me, being a CEO is being on your front foot, right, and taking action. And it starts to push you on your back foot. And now you are defending every action you take. You're re-justifying. You're, you're, yeah. And it has a whole string of implications down to the team rather than pushing forward. Uh, mm. And especially in an early stage uh, company you know, uh, founders and CEOs need to be on their front foot. They need to be leading and pushing forward, uh, navigating, you know, challenges all the time. But now we've, we've become, or I've become defensive because, you know, this, this gamble that we're very passionate that we advocate for, we're getting like, well, I told you so, and we're this, and uh, it's creating a lot of friction. And you're now in a place of defensiveness versus the team working together, the team being the board working together to, to solve the problem. Uh, and that, okay. that's, I think, just how it starts, right? Uh, and it gets, you know, snowballs, you know, from, from there. This conversation is just getting very invigorating, actually. But ding, 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 ding. That is not the sound of my voice. That is a real bell. It is time for the speed round here at Finally, part of our tradition. Orrin Falkovitz of D.C., Florida, and California. Cool Ranch Doritos or Nacho Cheese Doritos? Or Nacho Cheese. Which country have you visited that you most want to visit again? Japan. Which country have you visited that you least want to visit again? Canada. Canada. On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being awful, 10 being superb, Joe Biden. 8. Donald Trump. Uh, 1. Kamala Harris. 5. Vivek Ramaswamy. Negative 1. Where will Vladimir Putin be in 10 years? Where will Vladimir Putin be in 10 years? Yes. In a, in a DACA. Oh, in a, in, a, in a nice countryside house. Okay. Exactly. Who yeah. will be president in 2025? I have no idea. Name a favorite restaurant in the D.C. area. Oh, the Red Hen. Oh, what do you like there? Oh, everything. A, a, exceptional. Best restaurant in Washington, D.C., the Red Hen. And I think I know the answer to this question. Name a favorite restaurant in the Bay Area. I, I don't believe one exists. Right. Okay. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I would say the uh, Presidio Social Club in the Presidio is, is, a, is a fun place to go. I love it. Very erudite answer. Do you believe that aliens have visited Earth in the past? 
yes, I believe other organisms have traveled here, but not the types of. You mean you like know, on a uh, meteor, like on a meteor? On a meteor, like, yeah, exactly. This yeah, is an maybe. evolutionary comment. It's not an alien's comment. Yes. Okay. Do you believe that the United States is in possession of alien spacecraft? I do not. Okay. Um, please name one guilty pleasure and extra points if it's at least slightly off-brand or embarrassing. Oh, um, I, you know, nothing, nothing off-brand. Uh, I okay. like uh, New York Times crossword puzzles and my Sony VR2. Sony VR2. What what do you do on the Sony VR2? I play this like a game called Horizon. You like climb. I'm afraid of heights and it makes me sweat, but I, the VR is really oh. fun to try to experiment with. How many, how many hours a year do you spend playing video games or in Falcomets? Not that many, like maybe an hour a week. I, I don't get a lot of time for it. Not a lot, just an hour a week of playing video games. Okay, back to the interview. That's um, not a lot. You are now at a place where some bored toxicity has arrived and you're dealing with it. You're working through it. And there comes a time, and you should recharacterize this in your own words if you'd like. There comes a time when something is not going super well. Revenue is not growing. ARR is not growing. Customer acquisition is not growing. Something is not going as well as you'd like. Other companies in your field are raising more money at more spectacular valuations. And suddenly area one, which was sort of hot to trot, is less so. Yeah, is really that, where this... Is that a good at characterization or is that a myth? Um, what was right about it? What was wrong? What's going on that's right? What's going on that's wrong? Roughly well, I... sometime after these other investors have joined and are adding toxicity to your board experience. The well, first it. time I started to to see this was we, we went out for you know an additional third round of financing, and I started to hear investors say, "Excuse me, that we were a tweener." And I thought, "Huh, I don't really know what that means." But I, I, what what they were saying was that a lot of firms are designed to invest at certain stages, and they have very rigid mechanics like you should be doing this much revenue, you should be doing this. And it's not really based on where our company should be or what <clears throat> a natural progression. And so we started to get hit a lot with this like tweener, which was like, this is a really good company. People really like it. But, you know, at your stage, we want you to be doing 15 to $20 million and we're doing 10 to $12 million in revenue. Uh, and I thought that was sort of, uh, sort of unusual uh, sort of thought because it really had very little to do with our business. It had to, more to do with these sort of, financial engineering of where folks uh, were investing. And, and, the, and the reason I mentioned this is because a, a, lot, a lot of the continued friction on the board is about, can you raise money? And as we you know, had challenges going to national investors, people would say, we really like Orin, we really like the team, we really think it's a big problem, but eh, you know, like there's a tweener, they're like a tweener. And that's not something that like we can really change. We're just sort of presenting, you know, where we are as a business. And so we started to see some really wild and irrational suggestions come from specific board members. And my, my favorite one uh, that, that was the most inane is they suggested, well, maybe we should read letter our stock certificates 
So we would fool investors that like, we're not a series C company. We'll just call it a series B company. Uh, and, um, okay. So, so wait a second. So a tweener is a tweener is look, you know, your, your company is very impressive, but you might not be as mature as the round of financing that we think you're trying to raise would imply. That's what, that's what being a tweener is, right? Yes or no? I mean, like simply, simply put, there's not. Yes. Yes. Okay, fine. We could add more color later, you could, but I want to make sure we understand what a tweener is because this is not obvious to our audience. And one of your board members says, <laughs> if I hear you well, one of your board members says, look, you know, we did our Series B beta already, and now you're going to go for a Series C Charlie. But you know what? Let's just call it a Series B because it seems like you're a pretty mature Series B, but you're too junior for Series C, is that what I'm hearing you report? That's right. We'll rename and, the and B how, A2. Yeah. What? Yeah, we'll go take the certificates for the Series B and rename them A2. And we'll say, well, now this is the Series B. Okay. Which, of and course, so how does that from, make you feel? What do you, think, what do you think about that at the time or now? Well, it makes me feel like I'm dealing with one of the dumbest people on planet Earth because um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the lettering is just a sequential series in the documents it really has no you could call it series cool ranch doritos like it doesn't matter Uh uh you know what you call it and uh Uh so the the concept to me is silly it's going to cost us a lot of money to do it and then third nobody is going to be fooled by this because Uh they all have pitch deck they can see there have been multiple successive rounds and so you start to see that there is this we start to feel a lot of frustration that there's this whole world that could that be the case that changing the letter on the stock certificates would would matter to anyone uh and you know we're spending hours and hours and tens and you know maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this right um and then we continue to go you know to talk people nobody is fooled by the outcome right at all and this is just, I think, a, just a small, but you know, uh, example of the kind of shenanigans well, that can now. happen. What other wackadoodle well, ideas just, did you hear? Well, they're just, you know, everything from, you know, I, I don't like this guy on your team to, uh, you know, we talked about the pricing thing to let's renaming the certificates. You know, this type of meddling, which is not productive to the advancement of the business, just sort of persists. It creates a lot of drag. Uh, and, you know, uh, friction. And I think that the ultimate is, you know, as, uh, so I don't want to skip too far ahead, but then, you know, this leads to sort of like, well, if it's not this guy and it's not the letters, then it's got to be Oren, right? He's the problem. Uh, and of course, none of these things are the problem. It's a very complex, you know, uh, dynamic building a business and trying to move it forward. And so, um, uh, you know, that, that, you, we, sort of jump, but that, that is, you know, where, where you get the ultimate sort of, you know, pain in the ass friction. Okay. So the, I think, I think what I'm trying to say is that, you know, the, you know, this class of investors are frustrated that their investments are not being marked up and because they don't have the experience or discipline to know 
what the problems might be or how to solve the problems, they start inventing problems. Well, it must be this, or it must be the pricing, or it must be the VP of sales, or it must be, you know, that we're a tweener and we should just call ourselves something different. It must be the founder. It must be the CEO is the okay, ultimate so sort of end to that let's, equation. Let's, let's make the case, let's argue against you for a minute. Let's make the case that this feedback is presumptively correct. Let's just play with it for a second. It sounds to me like there's some, on the one hand, you could interpret it as flailing, but on the other hand, you could interpret it as making lots of attempts to creatively solve them, uh, problem solve and identify problems that might exist without, by the way, yet saying, is Oren the right guy for the job as CEO? There are a lot of antecedent ideas that are, they're trying to be creative and suggest to you and to the room, let's say, um, why not interpret these things, these events with in that light? What was it about these particular interactions or individuals that rubbed you in such a way that you became persuaded? I'm not arguing with you. Just trying to pressure test your, your conviction. No, no, no. Came to be persuaded that they were fools. Well, it's a, it's a series of things. It's, it's not one. So it starts with, we knew we were taking money from a follower group, mm. right? They, they weren't selected for a specific expertise. The second is, as I mentioned, the board is trying to work as a partnership. And so these ideas are not coming from anywhere else. And people are just sort of like, or at least I'm intuiting it. They're kind of like, we don't really want to argue about it. How dumb is it to rename those letters? Why not do it? Right, like what it, the, the, to your question, like to, to your answer, like sure, like why not do it? But it doesn't solve the problem, right? And so you find a lot of this kind of like let's go along to get along a type of attitude, but again, it's not really solving you know the core problem. That's the, next, that's say, the next question. You, you, you're describing, as far as I can tell, one or two, I don't know, board members, but you also have on your board, I think, some people you admire a lot. Um, absolutely, yeah, and and one would imagine, and maybe it's not true, um, again, without naming names, unless you wish to, one would imagine that seems some of the more in tune or productive or historically helpful board members would be shutting down the silliness of the conversation or redirecting the conversation um, rather than entertaining some of this so-called silliness. Does that happen or not? You know, I, I think it, 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 it does, it doesn't. I think that when the folks are persistent, they're the overarching mode for, it's like, why do we want to argue about this? Let's just do it. The lawyers will, to use the lettering example, the lawyers will re-letter it, who cares, right? Uh, and uh, perhaps, this would be a guess, perhaps that following is important to the vast portfolio of uh, projects that you know these folks work together on mm. uh, there's a dynamic amongst board members which is beyond the individual company so you know that that could be a thing uh, I, I don't know but you know I think you do observe a little bit of that and I don't think it's the role for uh, independent board members to be like you know squashing every squabble you know that that I have or you know fine maybe it was like not the worst idea but um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, in retrospect, now where we stand today, we know that that didn't change the outcomes. And it's part of a larger pattern 
right, of just general uh, unhelpfulness and detriment towards the building of a successful business. And, is there a and I think if you talk to lots of founders, that is like, I would say if you talk to lots of founders and CEOs, you would find there is there is a lot of that, you know, on boards, right? Which is there are a handful of folks that are basically a detriment. There's a significant drag down. It's why, as we were talking about earlier, having those conduits into the right networks and really working with the best people is so critical uh, when you hit a rough patch. Look, have we been not a tweener and just growing? You have no problems, right? Nobody has a problem when that's happening. But when you really have a struggle and a lot of companies face an existential crisis of going out of business or change in leadership or needing to pivot and change direction and, and model or product development, um, you know, you, you that there can be a significant cost to having this type of unconstructive leadership on the board of directors. Did there come a time that you said to your the board members you preferred or you thought whose whose opinions were more estimable in your opinion did you did there come a time when you said to them hey look can you help me to get these other folks to knock it off or did you not ask for that intervention did you feel like it was not useful and there was too much of a go along get along dynamic um on the board to make such a thing successful i'm sure i i'm sure i did uh i, I don't recall specifically i and i know that uh there were lots of, you know, people having my back all sorts of times. I think the just the consistent sort of grinding of it, uh, you know, just eats away, you know, uh, at people. Um, mm. So I, I don't recall specifically, you know, asking that for times. I'm, I'm sure it happened, you know. I'm, I'm sure I asked for it. I'm sure there were other times. The thing that I was most surprised about is how much sort of dialogue outside of the boardroom and sort of behind my back, you know, was, was going on. This is a sort of a blind spot. Okay, so let's talk about the, that. You, you discover at some point that the people are talking about you when you're not there. The people on the board are having a discussion by phone in person. There's this pre-Zoom um, yeah. without you there. <laughs> how, and how, how do you find that out and how does it make you feel? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing for, for that to happen. I guess I was caught a little off guard. It's not it's not typical for my prior experience, like working for the government for that type of thing. People, people, I think, don't understand what it is to work for the government because they think of it as highly political. And it's true. It is bureaucratic. And there's a certain type of politics. But there's a very upfrontness, upfrontness about it, right? Everything is happening uh, transparently to you. Uh, and so to, to kind of realize that there's a lot of discussion happening around you, you know, it makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's just something that, you know, wasn't really aware of or trying to message or control, but, you know, maybe something could do better uh, in the future. Um, again, I think this, is, this comes only at times when you're in the tweener, right, or there's something a little off. Uh, and I think, as I mentioned, it puts you more on your back foot, right? And more and more you know, as we progressed, I started to feel more on my back foot. It was very hard, almost, and it was actually impossible to regain control of being on the front foot leading forward because we were just defending, you know, a hundred things, you know, a hundred things are going wrong, things that, you know, I thought were silly, a hundred things that were, uh, were actually silly, you know, and just this defensiveness doesn't allow the company to grow. It changes the internal dynamics on the team and changes the interpersonal relationships with the external, you know, board members. Um, then you get fired. 
well no <laughs> first of all nobody gets fired you know it's a, it's a it's a it's a I, what I would what I would say is that I think that um, what happened com- so something happened there was a new there's a moment when in the case of Area One and I'm being flip but I guess I was being too flip so you're entitled and allowed to well look what, what I, there comes a time when you're no longer CEO how does that go down and I think you're not happy about it so how does that go down no I'm perfectly happy about it I mean, okay, <laughs> you're perfectly happy about it so tell tell that part of the story because. The, the I, I want to say three things. The toxicity, that, the toxicity on the board from people you don't admire, you don't think really belong there, leads to a slowing down of creativity, of risk taking, leads to second guessing, leads to a tax on leadership, and then eventually leads to, hey, we have to think about a different CEO. That's kind of where you left us a few turns at the crank yeah. ago. Now let's I want to I wanna say, yeah, I want to say three things about it. I think you know, for for myself. Um, and the thing that I try to work with people today on is I think it's hard for entrepreneurs to sometimes articulate what they're seeing in the business um, properly or what they're delivering as a message is not received, right? And so what I mean by that is we, I really felt like we had reached a point in the business where growing was hard. It was hard to raise additional capital. And I don't think that the board members were either hearing because I wasn't communicating it properly or believing what I was saying because they thought, well, someone else can, can do it better. And I think that sort of, you're the guy like on the ground floor saying, this is what's happening. Um, that, you know, is, is, is a challenge, right? Is to say, look, it's not going to change, right? So that's kind of like the first, you know, thing that happens uh, and I think an area where CEOs and entrepreneurs need to really focus on is communicating very deliberately, you know, about that. So my view was that the company should go through a sale process and we had been courted by some folks and, and I thought that we had really reached our limit um, for a variety of reasons. There were acquirers who were interested and we should pursue it heavily. I think rightly, you know, the board felt the company was, was too valuable and had too much potential. Uh, that we shouldn't give up so easily. And I agree with that. I actually think company, you know, had a tremendous amount of potential and could could grow. But I didn't know what the answers to make new investors, you know, come in or uh, to grow the company uh, any any visit. And so, you know, I sat down with, uh, with primarily, you know, I personally sat down primarily with Ted and Derek and sort of talked about it. And what Ted said to me was, we're going to find someone great, okay, you know, uh, I only want to work with great people and that person you, you can learn from, they can grow the business, they're going to have the competency investors, and we're going to continue to make this thing. That is a solution that is very amenable okay, to me. Okay, okay, okay. You know? Okay. Well, I'm going to get to the, the thing okay. here. There are, in Silicon Valley, some legendary iron fists and velvet gloves, people who make you feel like this is your call, when in fact it was theirs. Did this happen in this case? Were you basically being told, look, we're going to hire a new CEO and we want you to own this decision and be good with it? Or do you feel like you were really there as part of the decision? Well, I felt both things, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so, I, and, and what, I, what I mean by that is if we are truly going to get someone great, then that's great for everyone. Because you have to remember, this is a, you know, a business with over 100 people, uh, significant, you know, opportunity, a lot of people's, you know, livelihoods, you know, 
folks have worked for me for, for 10 or plus years, right? Have really mm -hmm. banked a lot, have taken salary cuts. So, you know, we want to keep that intact. Like that is a primary motivation for myself. The personal ego of my, of, of what I do is not really paramount to me as it is protecting the other people that are in there that have long relationships that I respect that, you know, want them to see, you know, good outcomes. So there if you're truly going other employees. Correct. But if you're truly going to get someone great, good for me, good for them, good for all the better for the other employees, perhaps. Okay. Got it. No, no, no problem. Yes, of course. Right. Nobody, nobody wants to be told, right. That, you know, you're just not the, the person, but this is a realization that I think everyone had sort of come to that we are at an inflection point uh, and we don't have any other answers for it. Mm, right. Mm. Uh, but what ended up happening is we, we just don't get someone great. <laughs> right. And those same people on the pricing, on the renaming, they start to influence this hiring decision. Wait, I want to make sure wearing... I you well. You just said in this interview that the person who replaced you as CEO is not great. Well, I, you know, I don't want to put it on, on them, but the process ends up not getting what I think that would not the definition of what great. Okay, did, the, really did the process suffer from, let's focus on the process for a second. Did the process suffer from the toxicity, the board dynamic, the partnership dynamic that you're describing, and if so, how? How did, presumably, these board members, who may not be used to running companies, are experienced hiring, firing, recruiting CEOs, what happened to suboptimize the process, specifically, without talking about the result? Yeah, so, you know, one of my key, so we, so I tried to control the process, we set up the good criteria, we socialized it, this is what we're looking for, this is what we want with it, uh, you, you hired know, a search firm, presumably. Hired a very expensive uh, firm for it. You know, <laughs> uh, put on put, yeah, very it's a very expensive uh, firm for it. Uh, you know, put on very smiley face in a lot of lunches and coffees. I was very unhappy to go to, but you know, did did the part you know for it. Uh, and why I think are you unhappy to go to those coffees and lunches? Well, they always ask, like, are you really happy with this decision? It's, it, it becomes a lot about you and not at the job at hand. And, you know, for me personally, I'm just like, let's do the job at hand. We don't need a lot of – if I wanted to go talk to a psychotherapist, Michael, I'd, I'd ask for a recommendation, right? Like, you know, from someone. I wouldn't uh, – uh, <laughs> I don't need to – I don't need to, you know, do this on okay. a so daily basis. You're, quip, you're quipping, but, it, but, but it's, it's not a psychotherapeutic question to ask if you're a candidate to be a new CEO, the – sitting CEO, if he's fleeing from something or to try to get to know him better because at some point, presumably you as the new CEO are going to have to work with this founder. Um, I realize you're being funny, but it, it does seem apt. In fact, bullseye apt to me for someone to ask you about yourself and your experience and your motivation. Is this guy pissed off? Is he, sure. is he happy to leave? Is he cooperative? Is he going to be a thorn in my side? Am I wrong? What am I, what am I missing here? I think that's right. But I think you start to see just the pattern of this, like this, this question, it's a sort of an unseriousness. I think there are more ways to get to the bottom of that. Um, okay. Everybody okay. at a business needs to have an operational role. And I think, you know, it's not uncommon. Maybe people say, you might, someone might say, I'm totally happy with it. They might appear happy. And then six months later, you say, you know what, this just isn't for me. Right. And I think, I you know, there's a little bit of deference there, but you know, this type of incessant, like interpersonal probing, I'm just saying, I found that to be difficult. Like Feels I want like to an interview on the finally podcast. 
not at all. But but I thought but, we were talking about the incessant probing of being on this and, intimate and perhaps and, and, and this this might be this might be a Michael mismatch. Brick. This might be a mismatch in uh, orientation, right? I'm a mission oriented person. Like I do work for the government to solve a mission, build this company, uh-huh. solve a mission. My mission here is to hire a person. Uh, my feelings about it, like. It, it kind of doesn't matter to the hire this person. I, I understand why why it could, but I really want to get to the brass of it. It, it. You know, we start to identify, you know, really strong. We start to identify a set of really strong candidates. Now, the first okay, so cadre. So, 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 despite these 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 meetings that do not bring you any joy, you are developing a list of candidates who are promising. Absolutely, and folks that I really really like, and I think you know can actually be there. Like you know, like I tell my friends all the time, you know. Uh, you know, I might have the title of the CEO, but like Bob Iger, who's the CEO of the Walt Disney Company, like we don't do the same job by any stretch of the imagination. You know, like we we have the same you know title, but like there are skill sets, and we're looking for folks who have. And I met some really incredible people, really, really like folks who you know were say like go go around the product, go do this part of it. Um, you know, had really compelling ideas. I think one of the things we were really looking for was someone who had the confidence of maybe an investor base, right? Who had proven themselves over years. And, you know, when someone is investing into a company, they want to know, do I trust this person? And they really could have that and could help us build, you know, that confidence to help grow the company. We felt like the product was good. The customers were good. We we're just kind of this tweener as we've talked about. And so a key attribute for hire would people with really strong fundraising experience. And we just met some great people, like really experienced, really kind people, really good fundraising experience, really understood Sounds areas. Sounds pretty good to me so far. Yeah. Really understood areas of the business, like, you know, some sales things that, you know, were, you know, not core expertise. So then uh, what so goes started, on? What goes on? Well, new? we started like, to, we started like, to develop what, these. What, what happens? So we started to develop these short lists and then, you know, float them around to the various board members. And now everyone starts to have an opinion about it. And through the first round of this, you know, it was kind of like, I don't like, you know, this person for this reason. I don't like this person for this reason. And in the first round, we felt, okay, I mean, that's fine. Like we've had success mm-hmm. attracting people. Uh, you know, we had maybe 20, we got down to three. We can go talk to another 20 and get down to three. This is not so terrible. But what I found is that just as it went further and further along, there started to become frustration. Like we just need to solve this. We're running out of money, right? Like, you know, and so the indecisiveness amongst the group uh, led us to a place where we just needed to hire, oh, and that oh, hi- that hiring was is, ultimately suboptimal. of the group, or there's one or two people. There are one or two people who are causing this problem. In the beginning, I think it was just group indecisiveness. Like you know, like let's just keep you know, like let's just keep dating. Let's let's go see you know. And are more. you are you for the accuracy of your institutional memory? Are you in your memory? Are you at this point saying no? Look, this guy, this lady. These are awesome people. Let's just hire one of them. Or are you I'm not going saying that along, because are you going along as well. I'm not saying that because I'm deferring to well, hey, if you see a, a modest flaw here, then maybe there's someone a little better. Like I'm on the path that we're trying to get from a ninety percent good to a hundred percent. And I and actually really the confidence in the process is building because we're being very discerning actually about things, right? But what I didn't anticipate was that the longer it goes on, that actually we don't go to 100, we go down case, to 80. It's often the case. Long searches are often the worst. Um, yeah. Yeah, a little tidbit from Silicon Valley. And so, so I wasn't I wasn't like, 
no, this has to be the person because we're seeing like, hey, these three guys, they're pretty good. There's pros and cons to each of them. Uh, we'll get another three. But as it went on, it just yeah. became harder and harder to a point where we were basically told this is the person that you're hiring. And, you know, the team was like, you know, what the fuck? And, and who and, and what? Wait, we were basically told that sounds like an important moment. Who told you what, how, where were you sitting and what was your posture? Were you across the dinner table at a fancy restaurant or at Bucks over breakfast? Were you <laughs> on the phone? You just made it sound so important. We were basically told. What exactly happened? Take us through that conversation. Well, I, I was I was advocating to give an offer a letter to to a gentleman. Uh, I, I I was told by 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 one board member they were low energy and i thought oh, it was kind of interesting but uh, okay uh, this person has now gone on to raise a ton of money in a really huge you know multi-billion dollar company it's a really i think that would have been a great hire um and, and backed by all the same people as well but it was too low energy for for our situation um and then uh you know i got a phone call from you know from that group that was was causing trouble you know for us saying like why don't you meet with this guy we think he's great uh, and it just became sort of fait accompli. You know, I don't, I don't remember all the dynamics, but it just became. So these became, conversations that are happening without you present end up having consequences. They build steam. They take on a life of their own, and eventually you are handed a fait accompli, as you describe it. Is that right? I would go back to the first thing that I was saying: is that the my inability to communicate very specifically either what the problem was or why we needed to hire this person or take this action specifically allowed a series of compounding effects to a point where it's like, look, you don't have any time left. You don't have any money left. You know, this is just the way it's going to be. Um, and, and you, you know, and you, and, and you don't, you, you've, you've already signaled you don't really want to dump on anyone in particular. And that's fine. This is that, that that's a, that's a decent, decent. Idea. I don't think it'll be hard to figure it out, Michael. So no, no, but no, and I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm not asking you to dump on me, but you did signal that you were, though not wanting to dump on someone, you weren't, you weren't terribly happy with the choice. How did you manage the dynamic, unless I misheard you, how did you d manage the dynamic with this person who, whom, who was not your first, second, or possibly third choice? I'm sort of estimating. Well, my, my analysis of that is, is purely objective because, as I said, we were looking for either solving the sales problem exponentially or being able to raise capital. And I think uh, a, the first one uh, didn't materialize. And secondly, the, the person had no prior experience doing the fundraising and raised actually $0 either for us or has raised $0 in their entire career. So, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm just speaking about that objectively. Like we were looking for these two things and we got none of them. Right. Uh, and this was I the, see. this was the, this was so the, you were not happy on an interpersonal, the, on an, the parameters of the search. Exactly. On an interpersonal level, really nice person, easy to work with, you know, some, some good things to learn, definitely some skills, you know, there, you know, respect on that level, not the right fit for what we needed. And the result is we ended up back at square one where I suggested, which is we should sell the business. <laughs> okay. And, and let's fast forward because we can come sort of towards the end here. You did, despite these, turbulations, um, turbulences on the board. Um, and despite these experience, uh, experiences that you're describing, 
Um, I'm aware that turbulation has nothing to do with the concept I was trying to convey. I think turbulation has to do with some kind of like photography process. Um, yeah. But the the turbulence that you're describing on the board, this unsatisfactory dynamic you're describing on the board, this toxic experience you're describing on the board, results in a suboptimal, according to the parameters of the search, result. And yet you become personally wealthy when this CEO presumably steers the company towards a satisfactory sale. Um, well, I, I, I did that part, but uh, fine. Okay, you we, did that. We, Wait, okay, then. So, so then, so then the CEO comes and really doesn't add value. You still have, is that right? You still have as the C, as the founder, the obligation and the energy and the chutzpah to go get the company sold. Is that right? Yes, that, I mean that that is what happens. Yes. Okay, and so we so we were how, we were, how, we how, were, how, we were delivered. The CEO changed as the transaction take place or begin to within take a place? year. One say, say it again. The, the transaction closed within a year of the okay. transition. Okay, so you're like, look, never mind this guy. I'm just going to go try to sell the company. No, 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 no. I, I wouldn't say that. Way. That was something we worked on together. But they gave me the authority to go to do it, and we were in communication, you know, about it. And it wasn't rogue, which I think is important to to do, you know, to be a team player uh, on that front. But uh, you know, we were able. Uh, that was a single-handed, you know, execution of play. Uh, I, I don't want to get into too many of those dynamics, but um, uh, okay, that is, is, is not the case. Is not the case that the that the new people, you know, led the sale. Okay, that's a fair boundary to draw. Sometimes the founder of the company is involved in transactions of the entire company as well, because the founder of the company kind of speaks for the company and has sold the company. Sure. And often mm -hmm. you're selling to another founder. Exactly. Um, and so exactly. the founder to founder dynamic is very precious in Silicon Valley. Okay. All right. Let's now enter a moment of introspection. Oh, okay. Orn Falkovitz, what do you think you ought to have done differently? You have been very revealing. I do not hear a lot of stories of successful founders who are as revealing about the board dynamics and so forth that many founders face all the time. This is the real stuff and you have been, but now let's turn this lens of psychotherapeutic interest back on yourself. What would you, or what ought you have done differently? Had you slightly less gray hair, turning the clock back, going back to those days when you were ruddy faced and playing two hours a week of video games, instead of one as a mature, older gentleman as you are now of a certain age, what could you have done differently? What do you think you kick yourself for now? Or what do you wish you had known then? It's, it's really just two things, Michael. You know, the, the first one is, is, is less of an introspection, but you know, I'm just a big believer that um, I'm a big fan of the University of Michigan football team and their coach has a saying, we're gonna say, who has it better than us? And the right response is nobody. And to think that me and my four buddies from the National Security Agency created a company, that software was used by a significant portion of the Fortune 500, it was acquired by a really large publicly traded company, it continues to be used, really nobody can have it better in the long run. On the introspective part though, it's what I've been saying, which is that, and all entrepreneurs and founders and CEOs that need to work on is communication, right? From the beginning, the more clearly you know, we could have 
I could have articulated, this is a problem. This is how I think we should solve it. This is where we need help. Making sure people were listening, right? Or not not just listening, what? right? But I'm sorry. What? What? Oh, that's a joke. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> what? Okay. Yeah. Okay. But but that it's really that part that when you speak, that it's taken with authority. I think that takes some time. I think it takes experience, but it takes practice and it takes work. And then not losing that being on your front foot, being able to be in control and take action versus being defensive. But I think it really stems from that when you speak, right, it's done with authority and it's done where people learn to trust it. It's, it's not that they don't believe it, but they're asking like, well, maybe like a different person would know the answer to this question. Okay. Um, How do you speak with authority? How does someone speak with authority? What does it sound like? What does it not sound like? Well, I think, I think it's, I think it's multifaceted. I think experience helps sometimes. I think asking for, for help uh, more frequently and, and early is, is useful. And then I think just being thoughtful uh, before you speak, you know, either writing it down or anticipating the questions. Sometimes uh, I found that you can speak and you're not anticipating how it's going to be interpreted or what the next question is. And so really seeing all that sort of what people call four-dimensional chess or edges, you know, of it can be helpful to giving that authority, like preempting the questions, um, uh, you know, not not always focusing on the positives, but, you know, a little bit more on the negatives is a, is a simple trick for folks to use. Um, so there's, there's a lot of a lot of different ways. But I think ultimately that is the, the area where that, that I try to work on today and that, you know, solves a lot of these issues for folks is to make sure that their words carry with them the heft that they need to make sure people don't go rogue on you. Orrin Falkowitz, or Falkowitz, I just changed the pronunciation of your name in this last iteration. Orrin Falkowitz, thank you very much. Is there anything else you would like to say before we wrap up here? I just want to say thank you, Michael, for your friendship and having me. This is so great. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening. <laughs>